Right in the middle of the main page of Bandcamp.com, you find the following words. Fans have paid artists $123 million using Bandcamp and $3.5 million in the last 30 days alone. But I thought music was supposed to be free. I'm Portia Sabin, and this is The Future of What? Bandcamp.com went live in 2008 and over the past seven years has been quietly growing into one of the best places for artists to sell their music, even though you can also often stream the songs for free on the same page. You're listening to Bandcamp Weekly. Listen to a lot of music. Listen to a lot of music. Whatever music you like to listen to, listen to. This is Eric Lau, and you're listening to Bandcamp Weekly with Andrew Jervis. Hi, this is Amina, and you're listening to Bandcamp Weekly. Hey there, this is Andrew Jervis saying welcome to a brand new episode of the Bandcamp Weekly. It's going to be a good one. Starting out this week with music from Syria. That was the intro to Bandcamp Weekly, a feature found on the main page of Bandcamp.com and hosted by Andrew Jervis. Andrew is the chief curator for Bandcamp, and he joins us today from San Francisco. Andrew, welcome to The Future of What? Hi, Portia. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. So give us the background. How did Bandcamp get started? Wow. Okay, well, I guess 2007, 2008 is just uh, the earliest days. And, and really, I wasn't there. I've only been at the, the company for about three years. So, you know, all credit to all the folks before me. And really, it started when Ethan Diamond, the founder, was trying to buy a record from a local band from their newfangled website, and after several dismal attempts, weeks later, was on the phone, I think with the drummer, we just sent him an email and had received a bunch of files called, you know, track1.mp3. <laughs> and I think he he had this moment of realization that this should be easier. Yes, there has to be a better way. <laughs> yeah. So the thought was, well, let's start a platform where any band can make their music available to any fan in a, in a nice, seamless fashion and, you know, charge what they please for that. That's one of the most impressive parts about Bandcamp because everything, I mean, artists have the option to have all their music streaming for free, but they can also charge for downloads, correct? Correct. And they can also get a little more tricky with the streaming side of things, too. Some artists obviously may be more concerned than others about how much their music is is streamed. And so as an artist on the site, you can set the number of times that any of your tracks can be streamed before a fan is prompted to actually make that purchase. So yeah, what we try and do is put all the power in the in the hands of the artist. So there's a little blurb in the middle of the Bandcamp homepage that says, artists have made $123 million on Bandcamp. And what is it, $3.5 million in the last 30 days? That's right, yeah. 
That's amazing. <laughs> it is kind of nuts, yeah. And it's, you know, permanently creeping up, which is great. But if you boil that down to a daily, it's something like 15, 16,000 records sold every day. Yeah, it's super encouraging. And especially when you, you look at the, another way to boil it down it, it is to look at what's actually selling and, and on Bandcamp. It's five albums to every single sold. Wow. Which is great. It's kind of the opposite of the industry trend, which I think is something like six singles to every album sold. So that's nice to see. You know, albums do still matter and some bands and their music do still matter, at least according to the, to the fans using the site. Yeah, and I think that Bandcamp is really a success story in this internet age because of the fact that you can both stream things for free. So you have the freemium or whatever people are always going on about, you know, present. But then when you give fans the opportunity to buy, you find that they actually do. And this, we've been, Kill Rockstars has been on Bandcamp for years and we've been really happy with everything we've done with it. But one of the things we found is that often a fan will spend more than we're asking. Like they'll actually pay. I mean, we had one album that someone bought for $50 that was supposed to be a $7 download. Yeah. And we were just, you know, running <laughs> yeah. around the office when that happened. <laughs> we were really excited. The, lots of people have been running around lots of offices when that happened. I think we've seen, I think the first time somebody saw a hundred dollars, there was the thought, oh no, this is a mistake. You know, it must be a currency thing. Someone entered the, you know, the wrong amount there. But no, they, they just wanted to offer support to the, to the artist that way or show their support that way. And I think the stat is that, every, you know, for 50% of the time that you enter, you have that name your price feature enabled as an artist people, you know, will, will pay more. And, and the amount that they pay more is, is uh, like you said, eyebrow-raising for sure. And then you guys are really coming out of this smelling like roses too because you take a 15% commission, but then that commission drops to 10% once an artist reaches $5,000 in sales, correct? That's right, yeah. And it's always a flat 10% on merch too. So if you're selling T-shirts, tickets, seven inches, cassettes, whatever it is, it's always a flat 10 on those too. And how does that work? Do all artists who sell physical merch through Bandcamp, do they have to do their own fulfillment or do you guys have some sort of fulfillment thing worked out? We don't have enough hands on deck to be sitting mailing all those packages, but we did make it super easy for fans or labels to connect to their own fulfillment solutions, whether that's using a company like Whiplash or Hello Merch or somebody, you can do that in the background. It's all pretty seamless. Or it's as simple as entering the email address for the person in the shipping department or, you know, the drummer in the band whose job it is to uh, mail out the cassettes. It's, it's pretty easy, you know, back-of-the-site stuff to, to get up and running. Why is it always the drummer that sends out the stuff? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I've picked on the drummer. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, I think it always is. That's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm fine with that. So tell us a little bit about your show, which is Bandcamp Weekly. It's sort of the first thing you see when you go to Bandcamp.com, and, and it's a rundown. It's a weekly rundown of, of stuff that you like. Is that sort of what's going on? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You know, I had this chance sort of meeting with Ethan from Bandcamp, and he was aware of a show I'd done here in San Francisco on KUSS for about 17 years, and he liked the show, and explained the plans to revamp the Bankham homepage, which really didn't have any editorial on it at the time, and offered me the, the opportunity to do a show. And it's been great. Done about 130-something shows at this point. And usually we interview a couple of different artists every week. It is at this point, you know, 
based on things that I particularly like, and there are some plans to expand what we do on the homepage now. There's going to be a couple of different changes to what we do on the editorial front. The first one will be a minor just addition of what's already there, but some, some more interesting and at the moment slightly secretive things are happening on our homepage in, in, in the next few months, so watch out for that. But yes, at the moment, the Bandcamp Weekly is my sort of rundown as, as the favorites and interesting releases from the week. Well, I think you are a good choice to do this because you have very eclectic tastes. And I think one of the cool things about Bandcamp is that you're not going to go there and just find the biggest artists, the most famous people. You're going to find, you know, people have a chance to do some real music discovery because there's some incredible yeah. artists on here who probably aren't on labels, half the time aren't even on labels. You know, this is their own music and their own stuff that they're putting out there. This is a platform that works for them. And we're going to talk to a couple of artists later on the show who do do that, who just put out music through Bandcamp and have been very successful. Yeah. I mean, this week's show is any kind of indication, although, you know, one show can never really boil down what's on the site and, and what the show stands for. But this week's show, I interviewed Dungan from Sweden, mm-hmm. Mexican Summer, and also a rapper called Milo, who just self-releases and spends too much of his time apparently packaging cassettes. <laughs> and... I always want to have that balance in there of people who maybe don't need the helping hand, just but just make amazing music and it's on the site. So yeah, let's play it. And then people whose music is also super cool, but they might not be household names. And I think that that balance is always going to be super important. And and maybe coming from an independent label, you know, before I start the bank hand kind of, I, I know what it's like to be on, on the other end of the, uh, of the stick and not to get the limelight. So I think it's really important that no matter who joins, which labels joined or which artist is releasing, I think it's always important we have that balance of, hey, this just happens to be great. You just never heard of them. I'm not, I may not have heard of them until I was digging around and researching that week's show, along with names that people will know. Well, thanks for your great work. I mean, it really, I think it's really terrific in the marketplace today to have such a tool for discovery and have an opportunity for people who otherwise wouldn't be heard to get their music out there. So thanks for doing that. Well, it's totally my pleasure. In some weeks, I can't even believe it's really a job. <laughs> Don't tell anyone that. Don't tell anyone that. Yeah, right. We'll keep that quiet. Andrew Jervis is the chief curator at Bandcamp. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Hey, thanks for having me. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. We keep talking Bandcamp in a moment, right here on The Future of What. Stay with us.
That was Take It As It Comes by Wimps off the EP Super Me. Jennifer Elias is the business development manager at Bandcamp. She joins us by phone from San Francisco. Jen, welcome to the future of what? Glad to be here. So tell us exactly what you do at Bandcamp as the business development manager. That's a fancy title. <laughs> fancy pants. Well, I do a bunch of things. Right now, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work around podcasts and audiobooks on the site. I also work with potential partners that we might be working with, and then a bunch of different special projects as they come up. So with a company that's sort of our size, which isn't enormous, it means that you, you do a bunch of different things, no matter what your title is. So tell us about, so basically, uh, we just got off the phone with Andrew Jervis, and he told us about the music side, but you guys mm -hmm. are expanding. So you're going into mm -hmm. podcasts and audiobooks. And what else are you sort of, what's, what's on the horizon here for Bandcamp? Well, I think what we've seen over the past couple of years is that more people are using Bandcamp for being able to sell and share their audio creations with their fans. And that's obviously music, which is the majority, but we're seeing people who are doing podcasts, audiobooks, audio dramas, and all those things, and comedy, as, as you all know, because that's on your label too. Mm -hmm. So there's this, I think it's a pretty exciting time because those things aren't necessarily siloed anymore. I know you recently did this show about comedy being the new punk rock. And I think what we're seeing on Bandcamp is that there are fans who have these collections that are this whole range of things. It's music and audio dramas and podcasts, and they can use Bandcamp for all those different pieces of content that they're creating. Absolutely. And of course, just for the sake of complete clarity, we are putting this exact show out as a podcast on Bandcamp as well. Yeah. Be because it's such a fantastic platform. And you, you know, Bandcamp has been so supportive and of artists over the last few years that we've, we're, we're super happy to work with you guys. Cool. Well, we are too. And, and I think, what, I mean, one of the things that you're using with this very podcast and that people are using a lot now too is subscriptions. So this is sort of a fairly new feature that we recently announced where artists and creators can set up a monthly or annual subscription at, at any fee that they want so that their biggest fans can just support them on a regular basis and know that they're going to get anything new that this artist creates. And we're getting some really nice, we're just seeing this, these sort of really supportive communities starting to form. There's, there's one podcaster out of Australia who has a community on Bandcamp and there's a whole bunch, hundreds of subscribers. And he asks them questions like, what do you think I should have on my next podcast? Or what do you think of this topic? And these subscriptions sort of allow that kind of fans to sort of be a little bit a part of that creative process. And that's so amazing because it's kind of like Bandcamp is the place where all the good ideas of the internet were coming to fruition. You know, for <laughs> years, everybody's been talking about you know, interacting with your fans is is how it, you know, needs to happen. And yet, I feel like that never was fully realized via tweeting and Facebooking and stuff like that. You know, the social media stuff, you're sort of tweeting at your fans, but is it really interactive, you know, maybe for some people, but this seems like it's such a great platform for people to connect yeah, and I think that this, the difference about that is is that it is somewhat of a closed community. You know you're talking to people who support you. Mm -hmm. They're willing to put out $3, $10 a month, $50 a year to know that they're supporting you, to know that, again, you, they'll be heard and that they'll also be able to hear everything that you create. 
there's a there's a podcaster and musician on the site named Julian Vellard, and he's doing a really interesting thing with a subscription where he's doing both. So his fans are getting his podcast and his music, mm. and I think everybody's really happy about that because they know that they're going to get it streaming on their app. They don't have to worry about downloading; it's just going to appear. Another cool thing about Bandcamp is that it's so international. Was that by design or did that just sort of happen? Boy, I don't know if it was by design, but we are finding that about, I think, more than half of our sales are outside the U.S. So I think this thing about Bandcamp being a place for artists to directly connect with their fans is something that resonates everywhere all around the world. Yeah, people are really wanting that. That's completely obvious. (laughs) They want an opportunity to be able to support the artists that they love. And we've talked a lot to people, you know, like Benji Rogers from Pledge Music. I mean, these great ideas that people have had for sites where you, you know, you, you can pledge over time and sort of be part of the process of making an album. But I love Bandcamp because it's more, you're committing to an artist's whole career. You know, you're basically subscribing to everything they're doing, which is wonderful. Yeah. And you're subscribing to everything and you're also getting some things that maybe are exclusive. Mm -hmm. I think that's another benefit of that is that you can use these subscriptions and say, okay, you guys are my subscribers. I'm going to give you this demo. It's not going to go out to everybody. And so to be able to get access to some of those kinds of pieces of audio feels, I think, pretty special for people who are subscribing. Do you have any stories of any particularly cool things that people have offered as subscriber gifts? Yes. Um, you mean in addition to yours? Really cool in addition to ours, yes. We talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a band called Rabbit Rabbit Radio working out of Woods Hole. And they are doing a whole year sort of exploring the ocean. And so what they're doing in their subscription is fans are going to get everything from sort of written pieces to podcast-like items to music. And they have these sort of different tiers. So you can just subscribe for $4 a month and get all of the audio. But if you're willing and interested and supportive enough to subscribe, let's say for $10 or $25 a month, you're going to get things like a handmade postcard every month. And I saw the one that Carla's one of the bandmates. She created these postcards with her daughter and then posted the photographs of their process of creating these really beautiful watercolor postcards that every subscriber is getting every month. Wow. They're also getting sort of a limited edition silkscreen poster. Wow. So that's really cool. I'm also seeing people who are saying, you know, you're going to get a chance to be able to come into our recording studio and join us. So I think people are getting really creative. Others are offering free tickets for whenever they're performing in a subscriber's town. People can go to all their shows for free. Uh, So people are getting really creative. That's awesome. I love it. Bandcamp rules. <laughs> I think so too. Jennifer Elias is the business development manager at Bandcamp. She joined us from San Francisco. Jen, thanks so much for being on The Future of What. Thanks, Lyle. It was great talking to you. In a minute, we talk with a label that's doing well on Bandcamp. Stay with us on The Future of What. <laughs> Come out, come on, let's talk, come on, 
That was Majrat Ian by Abba Gargando, the most recent release by Sahel Sounds. Christopher Kirkley is the man behind Sahel Sounds, and he joins us now. Christopher, thanks for coming on The Future of What? Cool. Thanks for having me on. So is that song a classic folk song? Because I'm pretty sure that I heard Ali Farka Torre's version of that on The Source back in the day. Do you know? Well, no, I I don't know if Ali Farka Torre would have covered it, but there is quite a lot of similarities between all of the music you're hearing up in the, the north of Mali. A lot of that pentatonic guitar stuff has a similar sound to it because people are playing within this general folk tradition. Gotcha. Because that was, I played that song, I was listening to it, and I was like, whoa, this totally reminds me so much of that one particular Ali Farquhar Torre song. Well, I mean, it makes sense. You know, Abba's from the same area, uh, same region. So they all kind of grew up listening to Ali Farquhar Torre. Yes. So the Sahel is the part of Africa, south of the Sahara, and it encompasses parts of Mali, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, and Sudan. Is that correct? Yeah, Mauritania, Burkina Faso. I think it ends around the the mountains of Ethiopia, if I'm correct. But I haven't made it that far east. (laughs) So you have to tell us, how did you get into doing this kind of music? How did you get into West African music? I just first got involved with West African music by uh, traveling to West Africa. I was traveling around, uh, writing a blog that was documenting my experiences meeting musicians and recording musicians. Uh, this was back in about 2009, and, and I, I was traveling around with a guitar and a digital recorder at the time. So I would play a lot of songs with people, and uh, and then I, I knew when to put down the guitar and, and record and let them play. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it sounded a lot better sometimes when I wasn't playing along with them. So. Right. <laughs> a, better, a better recorder than a, than a musician. But but over time, I, I came, I you know, ran this blog and I, I created this huge archive of field recordings. And I brought that back to, to Portland, Oregon, where, where I'm based. And that's how this Health Sounds project really began. That is so Cool. So now, these days, you release, what would you say, how many recordings do you release a year? Uh, you know, it could vary. I, mean, I think between maybe like, you know, five to ten albums a year. A lot of stuff uh, on the blog that's not released, but but yeah, official albums, we do probably about five to ten a year on uh, on vinyl and uh, on digital. And the digital stuff, do you release it solely through Bandcamp or do you have other outlets? Yeah, I, I only released it on Bandcamp. I I gave a give a try at the beginning of when I started releasing the stuff to release it on iTunes as well. Mm-hmm. But I found that pretty quickly uh, it wasn't financially uh, viable for me to, to do that. Well, I mean, Bandcamp's financials are just sort of obviously better. It's 15% fee, which then drops to 10% after $5,000 in sales. So, I mean, that's way better than 30%. <laughs> from iTunes. Right, and, and with a lot of the iTunes, you have to kind of go through a digital distributor, too, and, right. uh, and you have to pay a yearly fee for that. So what I, what I found was with my albums on iTunes, I wasn't actually making any money, right. and I only made enough to cover that fee, so it just was automatically debited every year and sort of rolled back into the proceeds to, to iTunes. Right. So tell us, this episode that we're doing right now is is about Bandcamp. So tell us how you got involved with Bandcamp and what your experience has been like. I first found out about Bandcamp just because I was looking for some way to sell music where I had a little more control over certain things like price points. I was really interested in the sliding scale aspect of, of selling albums. 
and also just do with the kind of low overhead and good percentage sharing. I started with Bandcamp in 2000, 2010, and since then it's it's sort of been my my go-to source for for uploading music and sharing it with people. I think, I mean, some of the things that I that that I do like, like I mentioned, was you know obviously the the percentage, the, the fifteen or or ten percent. That they take, but also the uh, the ability to do a, a sliding scale mm. uh, on on music downloads. Mm-hmm. I'm also I'm somebody that really believe in paying you know ten dollars for an MP3 album. So I, I've been selling the albums on Bandcamp for five dollars, and it's a lot cheaper. But at the same time, it's it's kind of you know it's a non tangible object, it's digital media, and I think by by selling it for this lower cost, people. I mean, I, I'm sort of the philosophy that most people who are going to buy music are buying it because they want to support the artist, mm. not because they have to. Right. I mean, if people want to find a way to get this music for free, they're going to find a way to get it for free. It's usually posted up on a blog somewhere. There's a media fire link somewhere for all the albums, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, if you're if you're savvy enough, if you can even stream something, you could probably, you know, route it through a digital recorder. I, I probably shouldn't be saying that on, on the <laughs> Well, we are an educational but, program. <laughs> right, right. But, but I do like that idea, though, that, that the people who are supporting it are buying it because they want to support the label and the artist. And and I see that. I mean, regularly people pay more for an album than the $5. I love that. That's so cool. We find that too with Kill Rockstar's releases, that people are willing to, you know, that they want to support the artist and they want to, this is a great opportunity. Yeah, and I think people also see that when, when they know that this platform is a little more, you know, direct to artists and you're not paying out 40% to Apple, you know. Right. That's a bit. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So do you do a lot of travel still in collecting these field recordings? Are you still going to Africa a lot? Yeah, I just got back last week, actually, from from Mali. So part of the job is traveling back and forth. It's hard to to do this stuff without being in Africa. So this is really a full-time job for you? Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) Wow. Between running the label and... I've been doing some some films as well, and we're touring musicians now from the label also. So, so there's quite a lot of different facets involved, and I've tried the part-time job thing, but it didn't doesn't really work out, you know. <laughs> well, right. I mean, especially if you go to Africa every few months, that's that's kind of a, a damper on your part-time job. They they don't like that. No, very much. they're not wild about that. Well, I think what you're doing is really fascinating, and I think one of the cool things about Bandcamp is that it has such an international character to it and it also just has you know it's like you can do well on Bandcamp you can find a fan base and you can be featured I mean you know the people who run the platform are still so interested in music that they're you know every week they're pulling up little known artists from here and there and featuring them on the front page and I think that's amazing you know that we have a platform out there that's still able to do that in this day and age yeah I think that they they have like they have a nice curatorial side to what they're doing but they, they also let you link directly to your page and to sell an album directly. And I, and I think that, that by, by saying, well, okay, we're curating it, but you, don't, you also don't have to go mm-hmm. through our curatorials page if you, if you don't want to. And, and, that, and by giving people that option, it's a platform that really is based around the user, and it gives a lot more control in 
in, that, in every aspect. Exactly. Do you have fan interaction on your page? Like, do you have people commenting and stuff? Uh, yeah, quite quite a lot. People are sending me messages through Bandcamp every day. So. so do you feel like it's also kind of a nice way for fans to really connect with artists or at least with the label? Yeah, I think it, sometimes I see people will write me a message and will say, oh, you know, for example, I have one musician, Maman Sani, who's a, an elderly gentleman from Niger who plays synthesizer. And sometimes I'll get a message and say, oh, hey, Maman, I didn't know you were living in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, would you want to play this show in, in Portland with our band? And after I back, it's like, well, actually, no, I'm label. I'm not, I'm not Maman. <laughs> so, so, but they might have just stumbled across it directly, that released by that artist. And so, so I think it does open up the possibility for this, this kind of direct communication to people who came to the music through whichever means, you know, via a link on Twitter or someone's Facebook page or whatever. Well, very cool. Christopher Kirkley is responsible for Sahel Sounds. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Cool. Thank you for having me. In a minute, we talk with another artist doing well on Bandcamp. Stay with us on the future of what? Frankie Cosmos is the musical nom de plume of our next guest, Greta Klein, who joins us from New York. Greta, welcome to the future of what? Thanks for having me. So how long have you been doing Frankie Cosmos? Since around 2012, beginning of 2012. Cool. Did you start out with a different name? Yeah, 2012 was when I started calling it Frankie Cosmos, but before that I was just like recording stuff and calling it all different kind of stupid names. (laughs) This episode, we're talking about Bandcamp. And so how did you decide to use Bandcamp as your platform? I don't totally remember the moment that I learned about Bandcamp, but I kind of remember seeing like all these artists using it and thinking it was cool 
platform. And just, I don't know, I guess it just seemed like a kind of easy way to legitimize the music that I was recording, like by pretending they were albums and like putting them <laughs> on a website. Um, so it was, yeah, I figured it out and just put up a bunch of stuff at once, maybe 20 albums at once that I had just been working on for a, for a while. And yeah, I've been, I, I got hooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have over 40 releases on Bandcamp now. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. I mean, that is that is an impressive number, I have to say. Yeah, it's. I mean, they're not like, you know, they're not all albums or anything. They're not like, you know, polished works, but it, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's still it's still an impressive amount, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You're a prolific songwriter, obviously. You you write a lot. But the thing that I think is interesting about your releases is there's all different types. There's a lot that's just you and a guitar, there's a lot of acoustic, and then there's a lot with a band. So you have a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so it's just whatever is taking your fancy at the time. You just put it all together and make yeah, it happen. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm I have a band, so for me, like, that's all I can see in the future is making stuff with my band because it's really fun to, I, I don't know, I feel like I, I did a lot of solo recording for a long time. And now I am, like, really excited by putting out band recordings and, like, having it sound really different or a lot more nicely recorded than my stuff that I was, like, making on GarageBand. So <laughs> that's, that's like, the next thing that we're putting out is going to be another band album. So Great. Yeah. So... How, like, what difference has Bandcamp made in your career financially? Pretty amazing one. I mean, it's like the first time that I made any money from music was just having stuff on Bandcamp. It was, it was always pay what you wish, but it was, for, I, I remember like the first time that someone gave me like $10 for an album and I was like so excited. <laughs> and it, and, it, and I mean, yeah, it's like, it was, it was the first time that I even like viewed music as something that I could sell, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like not the main point of Bandcamp to me, but it, it definitely, it's cool, especially the fact that it's, I personally like choose to make everything pay what you wish. And like, so if someone's buying it, it means they like really want to, which is a nice feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen there's lots of comments on your page from fans. I mean, it, it seems like it's a really good point of interaction for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has Bandcamp, like, do you have to have a day job still or has Bandcamp sort of funded you at this point? Well, I wouldn't say Bandcamp funds me, but we, we tour a lot. So, like, that's kind of my job. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So Bandcamp is a part of the picture. Yeah, but definitely definitely selling music is, like, a really nice little extra way to make money, <laughs> I guess. I'm not, like, yeah, I'm not relying on that. Like, I, I don't, especially because we don't have, like, a brand new release right right now. But soon we will, so then... I don't know. Yeah, I'll see. <laughs> I would hope that I hope people buy it. But. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So you said that Bandcamp is not like the point of Bandcamp is not really financial for you. So what is the point of Bandcamp for you? To me, it's just like a really good. It's just like really easy to use, and it's like for, I guess up and like now I'm working with a record label, but until then I was kind of like it was a really nice way to just quote unquote release something like, and it, and it just felt like a real release. You know, I mean, not that I was telling anyone like I'm releasing something but once people started following it and like Bandcamp makes it really easy to follow an artist and stuff so it just like felt it, it was the first I think for me Bandcamp book is important to me because it made me like feel like I was legitimately releasing music into the world to be heard and you can see that the song was listened to this many times and it makes you kind of like it totally has affected I think 
the way that at that time in my life that I like began to view myself as an artist, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a big deal. I mean, it's like the minute that the people who are listening to you are not just your mom and your like best friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really yeah, exactly changes everything. It literally was like my mom and my best friend, and then suddenly <laughs> like not just them. <laughs> right, and then you get an email from someone that you've never met, and you're like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody cares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first time that I got ten dollars for an album on Bandcamp, my I told my mom, and it was like this musician who who I knew, like, and I, I recognized his name. It was Noah Britton. And I was like, mom, like this guy, Noah Britton, like bought my album for $10. And she immediately like went on and bought it for like $11. Just so <gasps> she could be like more important. Oh my fan. God. She's like, I've awesome. been listening for longer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope she keeps doing yeah. that. Right. The more I <laughs> push that yeah. price point up. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So how did you get into music in the first place? You've been in several bands. Well, I I mean, I played like classical piano as a kid for like 10 years. And then I started playing, I started like, actually I took bass, like electric bass lessons in like fifth grade. And then at some point I just started kind of figuring out guitar on my own and like writing songs probably when I was like 13. I, I was like, I was more of like a side show goer. Like I wasn't trying to play shows or anything and then I first played a show when I was senior in high school and it was, it was just like by chance and I and I and I also like I think is when I started to take it more seriously was it one of those experiences with where you played live and then you were like oh yeah this is it <laughs> yeah kind of well I've been like trying to I think I had like sent my music to a lot of people and like nobody had really responded because it was like these really dinky recordings and nobody really believed me that I was like, and I also, I didn't know what I was going to do if I played live. So I like, didn't know what would happen if I actually did get the opportunity. And then like randomly this person who I didn't know very well, who is like now my boyfriend of like four years, but he called me and was like, Hey, do you want to play the show in two days? <sighs> and so I like went and I did it and it was, it was like, I didn't even bring a guitar. Like I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) So I, yeah. So I like, yeah. And I just showed up. I didn't have a set list and I just did like the worst performance, but it was like so exhilarating. And I I immediately like started another band and played a a couple of shows with them. And ultimately that led to this. So that is, I love that. It's like, wow, I was really terrible, (laughs) but I never want to (laughs) stop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I still kind of feel that way. Like, I'll still play a show and be like, that was so horrible, but, like, this is so fun. <laughs> that's a great attitude. That's that's totally yeah. how it should be. <laughs> I always felt that way, too. I was always like, you know, when you play in a band, there's always somebody who's like, that was terrible, and we need to do better, and blah, blah, blah. And I was always like, that sucked, <laughs> but we are all, like, this is so fun. Like, let's go to yeah. the next town. I love touring, too. Yeah, so my, my, like, yeah, it's amazing. It's, like, the most it's the best feeling. Yeah. But yeah, my, my, my new joke is being like, yeah, like me not trying to become, I, mean, I feel like, I don't know. Yeah. There's always the person who's going to be like, Oh, you have to brand, you know, have a brand or do something that's like more something better or whatever. And I'm always just like, but this is like, this is my brand. It's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> like that's my, that's my joke now. Is that like, Oh yeah, this is my brand. It's like, I'm bad. <laughs> I don't know. But well clearly people like it, so it's you know yeah, yeah. can't be that no. bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean the longer you the longer you do something that you're bad at, you're you're not gonna be bad at it anymore. <laughs> right. I guess. And that's the argument. I mean, that's the overall argument. You know, I run a record label and, and I feel like our whole goal is to help artists be artists, you know, and yeah. 
And the whole argument for, you know, just in the world today is that we have to make it possible for artists to make a living because otherwise people who would be artists are going to have to go get, you know, a job at the grocery store or something. Yeah. And we're going to miss out on all this awesome art because people are just aren't able to afford to play it. You yeah. Know? There has to be room in the world for a Frankie Cosmos. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it also must be really crazy to run a record label and like kind of try and beat that outlet for people but also how it's just such a crazy world now for like buying music oh yeah we gave up on making money a couple years ago (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like impossible it's impossible greta klein is frankie cosmos she joined us from new york greta thank you so much for coming on the future of what thanks for having me a sneak preview of our exclusive interview with the singer-songwriter Laura Veers. This interview is just one of the many bonuses you can get for subscribing to our podcast on Bandcamp. So today on The Future of What, we are lucky enough to have in studio with us the wonderful singer-songwriter Laura Veers. Laura, welcome. Hi, Hi, Portia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. So today we are talking to people about how they got into music in the first place which sometimes is hard to get all the way back there to like really remember how it all started. But that's what I'd like you to do is tell us from the very beginning, your earliest memories of how you got into music. Well, I was trained as a concert pianist and toured Europe as a three-year-old. Wow! (laughs) I knew you'd have great stories. (laughs) It's a total lie. I didn't get into music till I was in college. I had family members that were playing around the house for fun guitar and piano, and I took a few lessons here and there. But And my brother was in a band, and I thought that looked cool, but I didn't see any girls in bands, and I, it just didn't seem like something girls were doing. So I, I didn't really explore it until I saw there were women doing music in college. And the Riot Girl movement really inspired me a lot. 
to start my own songwriting and my own guitar playing. And as soon as I started playing guitar, I started writing songs. And that's really how I see myself in the world as a songwriter first, a singer second, and a guitar player third, maybe, if I had to do that. I saw a photo of you from college where you had a shaved head, you were naked, you had hairy legs, and you had a guitar. Yes, and the guitar was was covering up the important parts. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, there is. That's My husband and I did a TED Talk, and I showed that picture, and my mom was not pleased about that. (laughs) Of course, I have to let her down sometime, right? But yeah, I didn't really get into it till my early 20s, and then I was very serious. My grades dropped, and I was formerly a straight-A student and really into... I did graduate with honors from, from my school, but... I quickly learned that, you know, I didn't want to be a geologist, which was the the degree that I had. And I didn't really know what else to do. I mean, I just wanted to do music, but it's so hard. It's so hard to figure it out when you're a young person and you're like, well, wait, how do I connect all these dots and actually make an income? And I mean, my whole TED Talk was about that. And my husband, too, he's Tucker Martin is his name and he's a producer. And we've made tons of records together and been in the business for 20 years each. And we both really wandered around a lot with our paths, not really making sense at all for many years until slowly they they did. And now we're we're artists and we see ourselves as that for our, our life. And I mean, who knows how long it'll be a thing that we make money at, but so far so good and we can keep doing it. So going back to your college experience, was it the playing of the guitar and writing songs that captured you or was it the community? Did you find a community at college? It was both. For sure. I mean, there was certainly something that happened when I first started writing song that felt deep, like, wow, this is a whole world. This is not intellectual, really. It could be if you went into like music theory and everything, but I didn't really go that route. It was more, I could just sense there was a depth there, a mystery and almost this infinite path, which I still see it as. It's like you're never done learning music. So I felt I felt something click in me for sure. Like this is this is awesome. I want to do this. And I'm going to do this over and over and over until I can be good at it. And it was a harsh toke for sure <laughs> when I started playing out because I had terrible stage fright and Ooh. I couldn't play at all. I couldn't play what I was trying to say in my song. Like I was too nervous, too nervous to execute the guitar parts and too, my voice was shaky and weird and sounded really bad. But God bless the souls who watched me in those early, early days because I just, I did that over and over and over. Open mics and then little college coffee shop shows and then you know, tiny little tours up and down the West Coast with three people in the audience. And then, you know, over and over and over, I started learning how to perform. But no one really teaches you that. It's kind of like just school of hard knocks. And some people are really natural performers. I I would say I'm not one of those. I would say I'm more of a natural songwriter. But even now the performance, like certain times it feels so effortless and, and fluid, but other times it feels like a real struggle. So you kept at it because of the songwriting portion? Yeah, I felt like, well, this is so fun for me. This is so cool. And I love this. I got I felt compelled to share it. And initially that was as a solo person, but then I learned about the Rag Girl movement and started an all-girl punk band. And that was great because I could have my buddies up there with me and I could be the background person, the guitar player and the songwriter and like the backup singer. And then I had my friend Deva, who was a superstar natural performer, who was super tall and redhead, kind of like you. She had (laughs) short hair at the time and really just outgoing and crazy and in-your-face punk rocker. So I could kind of be the back-behind-the-scenes guitar player, and I loved that role. And that was that was really instrumental in helping me get over some of my fears Absolutely. and just having fun with it. And then I wrote a letter to Bikini Kill, <laughs> and they wrote back. Toby Vale wrote back to me in 1995, probably. Wow. 
And I, because I asked her, this was before I started the band. I was like, I really want to start a band. How do I do it? And she wrote back, which was so awesome. I was in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota and got this letter from her. And she was like, just play with as many people as you can and have fun and you can do it. And, you know, I, I didn't know any of those people. I just knew about the, I would see bands come through Minneapolis. Like this band, the Saltines, was was a like all girl punk band that we would go see. Uh huh. And but I'd never seen Bikini Kill. But we had their records and we would play them super loud in our dorm room and <laughs> jump around on the bed. And so it was really really important to get that letter. Yeah. And and move forward. And then also I did see Slater Kinney in the like mid nineties in Olympia, which was super amazing. And there were a few like Ani DeFranco was also a big part of my inspiration because I was like well she's doing it she can sell her music from the back of her car and go on tour at age 19 and have a shaved head and people come to her shows so why can't I do this you know (laughs) like it was a really good thing to be able to see that yeah so now I'm interested you had that experience of having a punk band and having a charismatic front person and you got to be comfortably just the guitar player and songwriter what made you decide to take the next step and be out there by yourself the lead singer wanted to quit. So we graduated and I was like, let's let's move to Seattle and keep the band going. And the other ladies were like, no. Well, the other two would have done it, but then the lead singer was out. She just didn't feel it in her bones, you know, even though she was a total natural. Mm-hmm. She just didn't feel it. She Some didn't people have the, don't. She didn't have the fire like that deep, you yeah. know. So I was like, well, I guess I just have to do that. <laughs> I got to just like muster it up and do it myself because I love writing songs. So it was just out of necessity. Yeah, because she was done, and I did. I did make some some more bands in Seattle. I played in a funk band. I learned how to impro- improvise, and but I realized, you know, holding a band together is tough. And I didn't have, I didn't make the connections that I made in college again, with women in particular, to make another all girl punk band. So I just struck out on my own and realized. Well, I also got interested in country blues guitar, which is really great if you're a solo performer because the guitar does so much mm-hmm. there's a lot happening with the bass notes there's a counterpoint melody happening with the, the fingers and and then your voice can do a third thing so it's almost like three instruments happening just wow. with a guitar and a voice uh-huh. so I was like well I can do a lot with a guitar and a voice and that was that was how I structured my first album and I really got deep into country blues music and inspired by a lot of the old like Elizabeth Cotton and Mans Lipscomb and Mississippi John Hurt and all those people who were amazing musicians that could do so much with just a voice and a guitar mm-hmm. and that's how I started my my early records now, I have to ask you this because I am a drummer, as you know, yes, but I tried to play guitar for about twelve seconds, and it was so hard that I just quit. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I'm so impressed when I meet somebody who stuck with it. So how long did you play? I mean, did you pick up the guitar and instantly start playing with your punk band, sort of in the beginning when you barely knew how to play, or what? Yes, pretty much. I mean, I had the basic chords, but bar chords were a struggle. To get my hand strong enough to play like a solid F was a long time of practicing. But I was one of those nerds that just wanted to play all the time, you know, and get really pretty accomplished. Although I was, I was sort of... I probably sounded pretty bad in the beginning. I know I did, but I'm worried. I would worry more about my voice in the beginning. The huh. guitar never felt like that big of a struggle. Oh wow, that's awesome! The voice so you're probably was a natural. Problem. Yeah, the guitar has always felt natural to me. It's never oh, wow. felt like. I mean, like I said, the bar chords was that was hard to get my hands strong enough to do that. But the rest of it, I mean, don't get me wrong. Country blues guitar is really hard to play, and I would spend hours just slowly, slowly working through, almost like in a scientific way, to learn this music. 
And then slowly it would start to come and flow, and then it was no problem anymore. But to learn something new that's difficult, it took me a lot of practice. Wow. But you felt like your voice was the thing that actually needed the work. Yeah, and I had I did take some voice lessons, which helped. But I think voice, for me, is all about confidence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most of music is, most of art is, but but the singing particularly, it, it will reveal your your fears quickly <laughs> under the microscope of the microphone. Did you feel like you had to experiment with different ways of singing in order to find the place where you were comfortable? I think, yeah, I mean, I did the yelling thing. Uh-huh. I, did, I did softer stuff. I, would, I did a drawl. I mean, I, I kind of copied Gillian Welch for a while. I Awesome. You know, just, you know, tried tried out different things until I feel like for many people, and this was true in my case, it just takes a bunch of years of doing different kinds of of art to find your own voice. And by that, I mean my own songwriting voice and my own singing voice. Right. And and I still, I mean, I guess I'm still finding both of those things, but I do feel more settled in them and I enjoy them more. Laura Veers is a singer-songwriter. She lives here in Portland. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Wimps, Quasi, Abba Gargando, Frankie Cosmos, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Bandcamp. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Patrol, and is produced by John Sepulveda, Will Watts, and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. Can I eat can a carrot in your ice cream? No, can I lend a from your navel? No, can I eat a beer in your glasses? No, mind your own business. Don't you?